Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson. On our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Howdy. And today, we're joined by Edgar Pino. He's our hey, special hi. guest today. So, Edgar, can you say hi? Hey, how's it going? And Edgar, we'd love to just have you do a brief introduction about yourself and kind of your background and, and before we jump into our conversation. Uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Edgar Pino. I've been programming in Elixir for around two, two and a half years, probably. I work at Pluralsight, the software engineer. Yeah, glad to be here. And before the show, I just learned that you also live in Utah, which is where I live, which is funny. Like, how did you end up in Utah? You said you, you've only been here about a year or so? We came a lot to the national parks around here. We, we hiked a lot around the probably national, you know, all the national parks around the area. And we just liked the area and we just decided to move. That's awesome. I grew up in Nebraska and then lived in Alabama and I ended up out here too. And uh, I love the, the nature. Yeah, we have lots of awesome nas- national parks and state parks and it's great. So I hope you enjoy winter sports because we're heading into winter. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we get a good winter. So <laughs> yeah, the winter is the part that I would not handle so well out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I used to live in Wisconsin, so we get a lot of snow there and it's really cold during the winter. So I guess the winter here is okay. <laughs> it's not bad. In Alabama, if a snowflake falls, the stores all just sold out of bread and milk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I lived in Alabama too. And yeah, any like rate, I don't know, freezing rain or anything, there's accidents everywhere. No one knows what to do. It's terrible. But anyway, so Edgar, uh, we wanted to invite you on today and talk about some of the, you had some recent blog posts talking about and kind of getting people up to speed on Ecto. And wanted to also just kind of talk about some of the new, the new announcements around Ecto and Ecto version 3. So I'm just curious if you just want to kind of give us a little, kind of get us up to speed on you know, what's going on with Ecto right now. There's recently a new, a new version of Ecto that's been in the works for a couple months. And I think it was just released probably two weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. And one of the major features in that, one of the breaking changes will be splitting the Ecto and the Ecto SDL. As before, it was all part of the same repo. And along with that, there's a lot, you know, there's the calendar types and um, some of the updates to the way that Ecto version 3 handles the JSON uh, data structure, which it was interesting because when I was writing the, the block for Sirius, I was still writing it for Ecto version 2. So I have to wait a little bit and then make the changes for Ecto 3. So <laughs> still working the last part of it, which is basically a lot of the, the actual querying of data. And that's some of the difficulty, I guess, of kind of documenting a moving target, right? Yeah, exactly. So right as it released the second version of the post, like version three was officially out. So I had to make sure that version one, the, the, the post for one and two were actually up to date with, with the current version. So <laughs> I had to make a couple of adjustments there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I know that um, following semantic versioning, this is a 3.0, which means, you know, breaking changes happen. And I know a lot of people are interested in kind of what is new what does this mean for me? And I know, Josh, you've recently also been upgrading 
Like what, what was the upgrade from two to three like for you? No, it was, it was pretty painless for me. The, the blog post from Platform Tech pretty much covered it. Well, really the, the hex docs pretty much cover it. The, big, you know, the only real change that mattered to me was the breaking up of the adapter and our ectoSQL and the timestamp bit, which is I want microsecond timestamp precision. So I have to tell it that I want that. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that microsecond one, I was not expecting that one. And it caught us. But yeah, it's not not that big of a deal. Like at first, I was concerned like, oh, no, does this mean my data types in my like migrations, my field types have to change? And but no, they don't. So it's just the ecto presentation and, and logic around that. Yeah, it was the same for me. It was painless. It was it was really easy to upgrade. Um, I'm not using the uh, the timestamp, uh, the microcycling one, so I would just have to make sure I included the ecto SQL package, updated my my uh, packages, and I was ready to go. So all the tests were passing. I had no issues. So it probably took me about five to ten minutes. So it was it was really easy to upgrade from two to three. That's good. I hope most people have that kind of a smooth transition. I know, um, like in terms of the the second slide, let's just talk briefly about what that change was. I don't know, Edgar, can you kind of talk about, are you familiar enough with that, that change and what they did with the, the second precision on the timestamps? I'm not too familiar with it, but I know they, there's an actual date time and date time, which I think no longer exists in this current version. And now it's just basically one data structure, which is just a date, which includes all the well, time, date time, and, and native. There's, I think it's called native, native time or native date time or something similar like that. But I'm not too familiar with that. With with that with that change specific change to that, yeah. There's there's the naive date time that doesn't know anything about zones. And while we're talking about date times and just generally how to how to preserve them, Elm has opted just to use the millisecond, probably microseconds. I don't know since the Unix epoch as the primary thing, and it turns out life is way easier because time zones aren't a thing. <laughs> like they're they they're a presentation layer concern, and you stop treating them as this thing that you're always thinking about. That's interesting. I didn't know that. When we're querying data out and we want to present it and and say we're ordering something by a, you know, like created at kind of timestamp, like show me the most recent on top, it does become an issue if depending on the level of precision that your data structures can represent. What's interesting about that though is I think for most people where it's like native data, like just user entered data, you're not going to ever really have stuff that overlaps the same second even. But it's when we're running tests, that's where we, the precision matters. And Postgres does not necessarily return data to you in... If you just say select star from table, it's not going to return it in a predictable order every time. And that, that's bit me in the past. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty embarrassed to say that uh, my tests are actually the only reason I care about the microsecond precision because I know inherently that means I'm doing funky stuff that I probably shouldn't be doing. <laughs> yep. Another, uh, I was just going to mention one other thing that was kind of funny with the upgrade. And this is just a, a caution to people to don't do what I did, which was I was trying to make, trying to be clever, right? And uh, made a little helper that says I can operate on an ecto query struct. So that's a struct that defines what the query is going to be, like its where clauses and its select clauses and all these different portions and parts of a struct that t- t- get turned into a query. And I was trying to be clever with that and give like helpful error messages. And I was actually depending on the internal definition of the ecto struct or the query struct. And what I found with this change to ecto three is they changed the internal definition of that query struct. 
and which they totally have the right to do, right? That basically in Elixir, it's not private because it can't be declared private uh, because it's just data. But we, we really should be treating it as private. And so I had to, you know, it made me kind of like, okay, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. I can pass in an option instead of like trying to be smart about it. So that was just a, a little fun thing, I guess. So the moral of the story is never be clever. <laughs> At least don't assume a, a struct is never going to change. Consider it like it, that it's, it's internal pieces. Unless it's a struct I've defined, it's internal pieces I should consider private. Were you relying on any of like, like the meta programming part of it or were it just you were just like checking the data structure inside or like pattern matching it or something? Yeah, I was just pattern matching and pulling apart pieces of the struct to say, well, what is the table and what is the, you know, just that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Didn't, didn't need to do it anyway. But so it was a learning experience. So it's like, okay, yes, treat it as private. So Edgar, I was wondering if you could kind of give us an introduction to these blog posts that you created and kind of what prompted you to kind of document this and, and share this? Yeah, so I so I started using Echo probably about a year, year and a half ago with Phoenix. And I, I always use Ecto with Phoenix, but I've never just used Ecto itself. So I, I started just learning just some of the you know features of Ecto, how it worked internally, a little bit of the history and why it was created. And I started just kind of just jotting down notes that I found interesting. And I also found a lot of like, there's a lot of good documentation. It's really good, actually. Uh, the app documentation is, uh, I don't know, it's, it, I really like it. <laughs> and there, there's a couple blog posts that I read, but they were just kind of overall, uh, very, like the overall picture of it, nothing in depth, I think. So that's how the, one of the, that's why the idea sparked of just creating like a more, um, like a series of blog posts of getting started with Ecto, all the way from, you know, installing Ecto, to creating your uh, your schemas and to creating the database and doing a lot more of the advanced query statements uh, with Ecto. That's great. I was going through some of this, like the part one. We're going to have a link to this in the show notes. And I'll admit there's some stuff in here I hadn't seen before, like using mix Ecto gen repo and just, you know, being able to gen using a generator to create the repo. So I, I guess that's part of the idea that I'm creating a and an app that is not Phoenix oriented at all, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the and now with even with version three now, since they separate that query statement, that persistent layer, so you can just use use uh, Acto itself for just the for the data structure of it, right? For the chain sets to make sure that you're valid to validate your data or like that. So it doesn't have to be just with Phoenix, right? It could be with any other Elixir application you, you want to have. So. Are you currently doing that where you're not using Phoenix as a an, an interface to your Elixir application? Yeah, so mainly for so I've a couple scripts for pulling data and managing inserting data to, into the database that are they're not really HTTP applications, more like uh, listening to rabbit messages or listening to uh, Kafka topics and things like that where you subscribe to data, but you're you're dealing with database inserts and all that, but not necessarily serving data into an HTTP endpoint. Basically, a lot of the internal applications. Yeah, I do, I do that as well, and I highly recommend it. Like, even if, like, I always think it's a good idea to break that apart from the web piece. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, and now, um, that's one of the features I think that came out of Phoenix One Three or One One. I think it's Phoenix One Three where they have the context now, where you can split your repository or your data or your domain logic into its own into its own Elixir app inside of the Umbrella app, basically. So where you split your a lot of the database layer to its own repo. I like to follow that kind of pattern using umbrellas as well, where I'll have a 
And I think this is what you're talking about, Josh, too. It's just like, I'll have one app that is the Phoenix-focused iTalkWeb, and then a separate app that has all the core business logic, and that has the database and everything. And so, yep. the, and I like that separation. Yeah, I actually publish a package that sort of has its own Hecta repo that it's using under the hood, but is just the data layer for, for a piece of sort of business logic. But yeah, has no web piece because you want to put your own web piece on top of it. Or not, right? We're using it for, for mobile stuff as well. Anyway, but yeah, no need to do web. Everybody stop writing stuff for the web. <laughs> it's a fad. I did discover recently, I was going through this whole process of starting a new play project. And it's an umbrella. And I, I went and discovered this, you know, using some of the new Phoenix generators and just trying them out. And I found one that is, it's uh, mix PHX for Phoenix dot new dot ecto. And then you give it the name of an app. And so like, this is like, this is what I use to create like my core business logic app. And so it's like, oh, this is nice. It's, it's like using Phoenix, but it's, there's no dependency on Phoenix, but it's like setting it up with the repo and the idea of being able to do the contexts. And, but it's nicely set up for the testing and everything. So I really like that one. But yeah, I, it's just kind of following along that whole theme of it's totally, it totally makes sense to have an Elixir application or you know, p- part of a system that doesn't do anything with the web. And it does, it does need to talk to a database. So that totally makes sense that we just need to have Ecto without the whole web aspect. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. Uh, I've never used that, that, that generator before, but I wonder if that's the way Phoenix might be heading to, right? where it might not just necessarily be for web applications anymore. So it'd just be a more of a generic type. That's really interesting to see where that will be heading to. So coming back to that topic where, where we talked about Ecto SQL being broken out from the schema aspects, is there any way either of you guys are using schemas that don't deal with the database directly? Is that something you guys are, have done in a project or are using? No, I could imagine exposing the schemas, but as far as actually dealing with the data persistence layer, I'm probably using SQL unless I have a really compelling reason not to. And so far, I don't. Yeah, I've, I've never used it that way either. I always use it with like persistent, like with Postgres or, or SQL database. So I'll be interested to know what are some of the, the other use cases where you want you know, a, to talk to a database. One of the ways I've used it is you know, with, the, with the schemas, you can have an embedded schema where it does not actually link up to a table. And I've used that for like within an umbrella, I have an app in the umbrella that is responsible for talking to an external system. And it's a big part of the whole system, our whole app. And so I would just made it so requests that would come into that app would have to be validated against a, an Ecto schema that had nothing to do with the database. And just saying, yes, that request is valid. I understand all the pieces of data and I'll, I'll take it. Basically, I was using that as like a, a boundary check to say when data is being handed off from one piece of the system to another piece of the system, it, it uses the schemas. And the main reason was is because you get the nice error change sets and validations and all that logic is kind of built in with casting. And I don't have to worry about if it was came in as a string or an integer, it knows how to cast it correctly. And yeah, that's, that's super valuable and easier now. Yes. Yeah, I think it does make it a whole lot easier. It just makes it, I don't know, say I'm using MongoDB or something like that. And I want to still validate some data and, but the persistence is going to be completely different. Then it still lets me do that 
in a nice clean way without having any of the Postgres kind of dependencies that the other the other Ecto libraries, you know. So in your use case, then you will you will get the data and then pass it in as a, as a structure and then just to the chain set, which then will validate that, right? Correct if that if that's what I I heard correctly. Yeah. So it was like the idea of like, here's a params map of the data. Like, here's my request of what I would like you to do on my behalf. And it would put that, you know, in the params, go into a schema, which turns into a change set. And it says, so instead of passing back like a, a change set with errors, I would turn that into like a string or something saying, this is why it's failed. And, and so it wasn't something that was ever being presented to the end user because it's just like, this is internal pieces of the system talking to each other. You know, it's basically, if it fails, I just want to be able to log it as to why it failed because there's, that means there's a, a bug or something in the system. Mm, okay. And, but yeah, so I, I liked using that just as a way of being able to validate data that's being handed between different parts of the system and saying, yes, I, I take responsibility for this request and I'm going to take it on from here. And so I, I liked using embedded schemas for that. And I think this, this split out just kind of makes that easier even. Yeah, I've historically made kind of my own adapter layer there, but using Ecto for it is always something I've, I've thought about doing and never actually bothered with doing, but I know people that do it. Yeah, it's not hard. It's pretty easy, actually. Okay, well, well maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the blog post, series of blog posts that came out from Jose Valim talking about Ecto 3. And these were released prior to the actual announcement of it being done, right, and ready kind of letting people know ahead of time, hey, this is what's coming. So I think a lot of people may have already had an opportunity to see some of this. But why don't we talk a lot about a few of the different pieces of it and what's any pieces in particular that you're excited about or curious about and want to dig into. Uh, what are you guys' first impressions on that? I mean, now that we have windowing, I'm expecting that there will be a, uh, a pagination library I want to use that uses it. I don't use it that much except for in sort of rolling reports. And I don't have anything going on right now that needs windowing aside from pagination, I don't think. That's the same with me. Like I, I use Absinthe, which is you know, a GraphQL interface that's a library in Elixir for supporting GraphQL. And I've just from previous issues I've been reading about, like you know, GitHub issues, it sounded like windowing was an important aspect that they were waiting for, like to maybe help with pagination or anything like that. So I'm, I'm curious to see how other libraries will be building on this and the other benefits we might get from that too. Yeah, I mean, I can't really say it's something I missed because whenever I needed something like that, I was probably writing a Postgres like prepared statement or whatever, a stored procedure. There we go. Words are good. So like, so I wasn't missing it because I wasn't writing Elixir anyway. Right. Yeah, I've never, I, well, anytime that I do pagination, I would just always default it to, the, to a simple way of just doing an offset and then, then the total number of results. Uh, and I felt like I've never, maybe once I, I needed more of an advance or more of a, more of a complicated pagination, but that I feel like that I could get off most of the time, which is the opposite of the, the number of results being returned. Yeah, maybe I should give the uh, that a try and see if it works better. That will be interesting to see how that gets used. I know there's a lot of other support for unions, accepts, and intersect, which again, for most kind of CRUD operations, I haven't had a need for those much. But I think what's nice about it is you know, the fallback was, well, I can always drop into doing SQL fragments or, you know, just writing a, an actual raw SQL. Make a view. Yes, or make a view. And what I think is nice is that, well, now it can be expressed in Ecto. 
Yeah, that's an example of something I expect I would use. So I use unions and I do make views and it's, yeah, it's a lot more ceremony than I'd like. If I'm building a, a complex report, I'm probably probably writing a store procedure anyway, but for something like unions, it makes like it's nice to have that to reach for. Yeah, I completely agree. One of the things that, that's one of the things I like about well, overall the elixir of the meta programming that it provides, right? That it gives us the ability to create kind of like DSL language for, for SQL like this. And it's very readable and easy to understand out of the box. You don't have to, you know, read documentation in the API to start just understanding what that SQL statement is. It's, have you uh, used, have either of you used like stored functions as sort of meta columns in an Ecto schema? Because it works and it's amazing. I haven't. Tell me about that. When... Uh, you can just define a function on the, on the table, like a Postgres function and make a field with the same name and it'll run the function and give you the result. So you but just, it's just by adding that to your select statement, it will execute the function and return the result in that field. Yeah. So yeah, you just select it like it's any old field from the, like it's a column, but it's not a column, it's a function and it'll run the function and it, you know, they're, they're fast, they're Postgres functions. And we use it for like account balances. So we do the drill down sort of in a ledger, do the drill down account balance. And it's very nice that that's just a field and you treat it like a field. Yeah, I've, I've used them before in the past. I've kind of stopped using them. Personally, they were, they were hard to debug in my experience. Maybe it was just me doing them wrong, but <laughs> it was much easier to just do it in, in, uh, in Elixir or whatever language I was trying to, uh, or what I was using. But I've, I've used them before. Yes, so I was introduced to using them by a developer I've worked with, Mortada Alcars, and he's actually just phenomenal with Postgres. And so I almost certainly wouldn't know how to do it if I hadn't worked on a project with him. What's interesting is I, at one time in my history, I was a .NET developer. I, I did everything I could to get out of .NET into Ruby once I saw Rails. But uh, anyway, like I, I worked at this one company where their policy was everything must go through a stored procedure to access the database, like even a, a query. Like everything had to go through a stored procedure. And I thought that was just the most terrible thing. Like, that, was, that was official Microsoft policy. I worked for a, uh, a Microsoft Gold partner. And yeah, that was the, the training that everyone got was you store procedures for your business logic. And yeah, so there's a benefit. Hey, everything's super fast. It's really hard to change it, but whatever. Not surprisingly, they also sell databases that they charge for by CPU. Right. And, and it's interesting. <laughs> if you write everything in Microsoft T-SQL or whatever it was called, you can't really port it. So easy. And now all your business logic has to live in the thing that you pay them a license before. Interesting, interesting strategy. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. I, what I thought was terrible about that, though, is just the idea that now you're still going to have business logic that's in your code. And so now you've split your business logic across like your database implementation and your code. And it just becomes really complicated to, to manage changes and and. Anything. And you know what you don't have in the in the stored procedures is Git. You don't have change tracking very easily, and most people right. would. Yeah, it was a it was an awful time. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> I had seventy page stored procedures that I worked on. That's not it's not fun. No, debugging that is so hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so I guess it's like I've kind of like you mentioned this interesting feature I didn't know existed for Ecto. You know, executing functions, and like I guess it's like that experience I shared is like part of that burn I had from before that like encourages me to stay as far away from there as I can. But maybe that's not necessarily always the right answer. So, yeah. So that, that's... Uh, I, I had the same sort of reticence. But uh, it turns out it's like for certain use cases, it's you need to get over it because it's just better. And so, um, 
And it's like, easy to it's easy to manage them in migrations. Like back when I was doing it in .NET, we didn't have anything like migrations for for the data layer. So are you able to express the the implementation of the function in your Ecto migrations? Uh, yeah, my, yeah. So it's just in there, right? So I create the function in the migration, or I drop the old version and create the new one. And yeah. So and you could even like you could read that in as a file, and then all of a sudden you have a nice change of that in Git. Nice. Is that part of the? Is that just part of Ecto? Is that part of the? I forgot what the name of the uh, the spec is for SQL uh, for SQL. Because I wonder it's, if other. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just. It's just SQL. I mean, in general, I think it should it should work anywhere, right? It's not a it's not an Ecto specific feature. You're literally saying, "Give me this column," and Postgres is saying, "Ah, yes, but what if I run this function instead?" Okay, interesting. Yeah, I should probably I, I'm checking them out and see. Do you run your own freelance business, or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side? Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere. Available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. So Edgar, I know one of the other things that you were interested in with some of this new version of Ecto, it's just kind of talking about like part of your deep dive, I guess, was learning about how Ecto was built and you had an interest in the meta programming. And so what, what kind of experience did you have with that? And so one of the, one of the first things I, I, I went into was the difference. So the overall, how Elixir is structured and how it's um, created. If you use other well, ORMs, which Ecto is not an ORM, but something like um, like in Ruby, I think it's called Active Record, right? Or in C Sharp, a, they follow this pattern called Active Record, which you, you can go it's an actual pattern, which is different from the pattern that uh, Ecto uses, which is called the repository pattern. And the difference is mainly is in the way that you that you basically manage your interactions with the database. So in Ecto, whenever you want to run an operation, so like an insert or a select, you specifically talk to the repo, the repository, right? Unlike the active record save. So it, it breaks up that logic and it makes it easier to to kind of reason about. So when you're reading, when you're reading code, you can see, okay, this is actually talking to database because I'm calling repo.save, repo.query, repo.update. Unlike the active pattern, like I was just talking about, it might not be easy to read. When you go over the code, because you might just be calling uh, methods over that function, right? Um, record. Um, so that's one of the things that I found interesting because uh, I've never heard of the repository pattern before, and I and I did a little bit of reading on that, and it was um, I was fascinated with the things that um, the actor was doing. Yeah, it's similar to so it's like the domain driven. It's following a lot of the principles from the domain driven design, where you have basically you break up that your logic, right? Your repository where you you talk to the database and you put all your logic in that in, in, in that specific 
Yeah, but yeah, so overall, you know, it makes a is an abstraction for the data layer, and it just makes it easier to to read and, and overall see where your data interactions are because uh, they're all in one place, um, which Ecto Ecto is is very good at that. Yeah, I definitely like that in Ecto. If I make a terrible decision and do an N plus one, it's super duper clear, right? Yeah, it's not it's not like yeah. I'm doing it like, oops, gosh, how'd that happen? It's like, no, you type repo there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so with Active Record, all that logic is part of the the object with with their data, right? So whenever you you save or make an update, you just call it a method, basically saying that save or that update. And unlike Ecto, you have to call a different a different module, and you have to call a function inside of that module, right? So yeah, I think I think including in, that logic. Yeah, I think in Active Record, the biggest danger is reads. Like when you say, "Hey, let me get this post. Let me get this uh, articles posts users." And somebody did that in a loop. It's yep. like, okay, well, that's a lot of queries. Yeah, and I think that's, that's yeah, it's a good point. That's it might be similar to the M plus one problem, I think, where you have, for example, you have a series, you, have, you know, you load up the authors and then authors have blog posts, right? Unlike, you know, Active Record will probably load the blog posts and then we'll make another SQL statement to load the blog posts, sorry, the authors. And with, with Ecto, it actually doesn't load any of the relationships, right? Um, I think you get that error. I forget what the name of the error is where... Ecto association it, not loaded struct. Exactly, from. that one. Yeah, that one. So I've seen that plenty of times where, where it's nice because, you know, um, you were never running into the problem. You have to specifically say, you know, hey, load also the associations for this for this author or for, this, for these blog posts. So... One of the other things I noticed that's new in the Elixir or Ecto version 3 is uh, where they talk about the better memory usage and just like performance improvements. And what I thought was really interesting about that one is just the idea, like they kind of, it's a great read. I'll make sure we have a link to that. It's part of that sequence of articles. But what's nice about it is they kind of give like a little background and like kind of deep dive into how Ecto is actually working and what's happening behind the scenes a little bit. And so you realize, oh, well, with Ecto 2, as it would load data from the database, it would get metadata, like about what the columns are, their types and all that kind of stuff. It was getting queried out at the same time. And with Ecto 3, if I understand this correctly, is that they have a smarter management of that schema metadata. So it's being duplicated less. So it's being able to hold on to one definition and hold on to that and, and as a reference so that it actually ends up saving a lot of memory usage. And they have a nice little graph of showing how it drops. I think they're saying like, was it 10% or so? Uh, on average, yeah, on average 15% less. Like that's great. That's, that's like a free upgrade, right? Yeah, it's, that's, that's actually a pretty good point. Like, we don't get many of those every time we update a package. So it's awesome that, you know, by upgrading a package, we get more performance and less memory usage. One of the other features I noticed that I haven't had a chance to play with much is around upserts. And I've used those with other databases or even just kind of, even with Elixir itself, just kind of like a programmatic upsert, you know, where I'm having to code it. But I do like the idea of being able to play with that some more. And that's like saying, update this value if it's there. If it's not there, then insert it with the, with, and here's the data to insert. So I think it's a nice feature just for... Yeah, I, I've used those and I think that they're great. But well, before I actually knew about them, I was just kind of insert. I was updating, see if they exist. Otherwise, just insert it, right? Or updating if they exist. But then after I find out, like my logic just became only a couple lines of code. 
And what's nice about that in Ecto, you can define which fields actually get updated. So maybe you don't want to update the authors or you know, specific fields. You only want to do a specific, you know, a certain amount of columns inside of your database. And if, if you have some custom logic actually running to this, you can actually use the fragment to insert, you know, to have, to have some more complex uh, statements or SQL statements in there. So that was awesome when I, when I first went about that. Another feature I think is worth mentioning just for people that they often don't think about when they're deploying their applications is database migrations. You know, like say I have a, uh, my system, has, I have, you know, it's running on three, three servers and, and it's a rolling updates, you know, so it's going to take down one, put up the new code, run the migrations. If everything's good, they'll take down the next one and kind of cycle. Right. And so one of the neat things that they added was a lock on the migration table. I don't know if you guys ever hit this where you have that migration that you did not expect to take a long time. But once it hits production data, it's like slow. And and you if you're if your next second server starts starts going, it's gonna try and start running migrations too. And then you you could end up with this contention or I don't know, it could get nasty, right? I have never run into it, but I knew that it was just luck of the draw. <laughs> well, I've created those migrations that this is an easy, straightforward migration. And somehow with the data that just end up taking like 10 minutes and it just wasn't anticipated. Right. So that became an issue with deployment. And so it didn't, thankfully, it didn't run into the problem of because this is in a, like a, a Docker swarm kind of environment where it says, oh, the container's not healthy. It's not up yet. So it was like killing it while it was halfway through its migrations. So we yeah, I ran I ran into that um, where it wasn't a new migration. It was just like an update to to a migration I created, and it was adding an index to a table that or to a table that had I think had a million records or more. So um, and when you add an index, it actually locks up the table, and it doesn't actually let you query the data until it's done. So yeah, that's a great feature they did that. Right? I didn't um, I didn't know that that they uh, they added that. I'm glad to hear you both of you guys have had good success on upgrading from Ecto 2 to 3. I think most people can expect a smooth upgrade. And then it's just a, you know, an opportunity to look at some of the new features and say, okay, well, yeah, I, I can... It's not just upgrade and keep moving on. It's like, oh, well, what, what does this bring me? You know, what new features does this have? And, and that's an opportunity for people to kind of dig into those articles and, and learn a little bit more. Yeah, I found these uh, this blog post uh, are useful. I know Jose does does that for um, you know for many of the things he works on, so that's awesome. Before he releases that, it's kind of like documenting the changes and getting you prepared for those <laughs> um, ahead of time, instead of just you know releasing that and then you deal with it. Yeah, it was really nice because by the time I actually had to upgrade one, I read what four blog posts on kind of the general tenor. So yeah, it was that's not normally what happens when I upgrade. I don't have like teasers leading me to the upgrade. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, you have to dig in for the new stuff and uh, try to figure out what, what changed and what, what was new. Yeah, and then you're just left dealing with all these deprecation warnings. <laughs> exactly. So I think this falls under the community is nice. Yeah, and, and people make an actual effort, you know, like the people kind of, I don't know, you could call it the community leadership. I don't know if there is a, so much of a formal group of that, but there are core, core developers, core team members. But they are making an effort to communicate and help people you know, uh, get up to speed and be comfortable with the pace and the movement. And in the case of Elixir itself, be comfortable with the lack of pace because it's mostly done. (laughs) 
I love that. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does. It feels like it's mostly done. Like, like with this one, it's refinement. Like Ecto-3, yeah, there are some breaking changes, but it's mostly just refinement and improvements and adding s- smaller tweaks and new features. They are new features, but they're not like, it's not like, oh, I can't use this tool until it has X. No, it's nothing like that. It's, no, I mean, it literally like breaking out the chain sets was the biggest thing I heard people say they wished they could get uh, for, I don't know, a year. So really cool. Edgar, I did have a question. I didn't get to ask this earlier. I was just wondering what kind of programming experience have you come from prior to Elixir? So I do, so I do a lot of JavaScript, Elixir, and C Sharp. I mean, I did PHP in the past too as well. The reason I started picking up uh, Elixir was I think I read a blog post. I don't remember the author, but it was just a, an introduction of Elixir and the history of that. And I did a little bit. So in school, I tried Erlang, which is, is based on so what Elixir is built on top of. And I, I really like Erlang. Like it was really like some of the features it provides, like like the high availability, the concurrency model, and the the overall idea and the problems itself. Like I thought they were great. Like it was built for telephone systems, you know, in around the 80s or 90s, I think. And like that seems like a lot of the problems that we're dealing then we're, we're dealing right now with distributed systems and and um, a lot of those microservices that we have nowadays. Right, everything is is, is um, everything is its own service and. The only thing I didn't like about Erlang was the syntax. So I kind of stopped with it. Like I didn't, I, it was it was really hard to understand. Like I, I don't know. I at some point I lost traction in that, and I didn't. I, I gave up on, on, on Erlang. So, but then after like a year, year or two, after that, I think Elixir was released, and that's why I started doing a lot more reading. And then I was like, oh, it's built on top of Erlang. So that's kind of I, I got started with it. So nice. yeah, there's 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 sort of an Erlang meme, which is you know saw a post about Erlang on Hacker News, scroll down to find the first comment about the syntax. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I don't know why it is that way, but like whenever I hear about a new programming language, I I you kind of Google to say, well, what's some sample code look like? And that I don't know why that matters in some ways. You know, you should just we should like ideally just be saying, well, what what are the values that this platform gives me? But yeah, a we lot have of to, it. We have to get over that as people because it hobbled me. I could have gotten into Erlang. I saw Erlang a decade prior to getting into it. I ended up getting into Erlang first, but I could have been building better stuff way earlier if I hadn't been such a weirdo about. But I want the characters to look like I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely right. I mean, I for me it was just readability. Like uh, it won't read for me. Like I, I could understand the syntax. I can read it or, or write it, but then coming back to it like a week or two later, like I cannot read it again. And I have to look, you know, like think about it for a couple minutes until I understood what I what I was doing back then, or a couple of weeks before that. So that was a big thing for me. Right? Like we, you know, software engineers and developers, we reviewed a lot of the software. Right? Like that's uh, one of the things we do. We just spend a lot of time reading. Reading over that. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, also, like a problem with Erlang when I was in it, even which was you know, fairly late in the game, was the library landscape is just it's weird, and there's a lot of people that have like, hey, I made a copy of this and made three changes, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, but here's a different repo. <laughs> and you know, it's just from a community library like stewardship position, like that was skipped. And I think like now that now that they actually have packages on hex and whatnot, I feel like that's getting better. But definitely that was a pain point for me when I was trying to get into Erlang. And that's the opposite of the experience with Elixir, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. The overall ecosystem in Elixir, I think it's well 
like it's very good compared to other to other languages to other ecosystems right like you can have you know out of the box you can just use the generators you know create a new elixir app and the package manager is awesome right hex there's definitely like good packages out there so and on like erlang right like you have to do a lot of tedious work to just get it installed and to create a new package or to create a new to create a new project and in elixir it's just five minutes probably and you're you're all set you can get started on on what matters <laughs> Yeah, I remember like the XAWS or not XAWS, the uh, some Erlang AWS package I used had a uh, just had like a lot of stuff that didn't work, but it was pretty trivial to fix. And so like I found it and fixed it, and I went and talked about it. And everybody that used the package was like, "Oh yeah, you bring it in and then you make those changes." <laughs> but but no, <laughs> shouldn't shouldn't that just be like fixed upstream? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, is there any other things that we want to talk about before we conclude? All right. Well, Edgar, before we go to picks, I just wanted to find out like, if people want to follow more of what you're doing in your blog posts and where you are online, where would they go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You know, it would be Edgar971. I mostly you know, I have a, a tweet therapy now and then. So whenever I come up with a new blog post. But yeah, I've got a couple, couple upcoming blog posts. Hopefully, uh, people will find that interesting. So Great. Yeah, you'll have to point people to that and share it online. I, I know people look forward to Learning and reading, you know, like that's what I do. I, I I use like Pocket on what is it called? Get Pocket? I don't know, but Pocket. Pocket, yeah. Yeah, it's in Firefox and everything. I use that like save articles and tag them as Elixir. Go back and read them. Yeah, yeah, it's like that's what I, it's like exactly what I do. It's science. It's very easy to just start saving your your uh, posts. <laughs> yep. Well, cool. All right. Well, Josh, do you have a pick for us? For you, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. I do, and I'm excited about it because it's very relevant to that conversation we just had. And it is This Erlang Life, which is easily the best Erlang-focused Tumblr blog. It's just a bunch of great Erlang-related memes that you feel awkward for finding funny. That's all I've got. That was so funny because I had looked for this. Like Maybe there's, a, there's another Tumblr blog. I don't know, but it ended up going away. And I had a bookmark to it and everything. Like It is some of the funniest things. Like these little memes. Yes, I got around supervisors and... <laughs> And just like OTP concepts, you know, just, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I've never looked. Yeah, this is really, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm just looking at some of these. And <laughs> yes, it is something that you can just, you know, just play with and just kind of entertain yourself. So that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. Definitely. All right. Um, I was going to share one. At home, I run a uh, Plex media server. And I, I do that because I love having control of my own media. Even if I buy a DVD or a Blu-ray or something, I like to own and control the media. That's maybe I'm just like funny like that. I don't know. But you know, I've too many times it's like like a contract between Netflix and Disney has changed and content goes away. And 
And it's like, I don't want that. So I use Plex Media Server at home to host all of my media. And so like, what I love about that is my kids will just use the remote and a Roku. And so I guess Roku is the other one or you know, Apple TV or anything like that. And just be able to play and stream media off of my Plex server. And that's like happens to be my desktop, which is always running. So it's like my home server. But, yeah, actually, I recently installed Plex on a, on a Raspberry Pi. And it took me it took me a couple hours to get it working, and it's I feel like it's working great. It's got a little. I think the Raspberry Pi is a little bit underpowered for uh, some of the, I think the coding that Plex does, which I didn't know it, it did. Um, but it, it works. You know, I can stream videos and movies out of it, so it's awesome. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I was able to get like the Plex Pass, which is like so. There's the free version, and there's the Plex Pass where you pay like either monthly or like a all upfront kind of thing, and. And what, what's handy about that is I'll be at work and I'll have like a series, like a television series that I want to watch. And I can stream it from my laptop at work over lunch. And like it's playing it off of my house at home. And it's like, yeah, I can do that. That works. You got like your own Netflix there. <laughs> yes, it is. And I control the media, darn it. I'm like That's a awesome. curmudgeon old man, I guess. All right, Edgar, did you have something you can share? The Ecto documentation, that for me has been very helpful if you want to just get it started with Ecto and want to overall know how it works and some of the some of the features it provides. Uh, I definitely recommend that. It's uh, it's very good. I think um, it's easy to read overall. So and it's got a lot of documentation, basically every feature in Ecto there. So the other one is my blog. So I'll share that here and hit the link here. Yeah, those those two there. So I'll definitely there's a couple a couple more posts that I have there that are coming up probably in the next week or two. So I'll just mention your blog is edgardev.com. So yeah, nice, and, nice and easy. Cool. All right. Well, that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.